Chapter 14 of A Water Biography by Robert C. Leslie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 14 The Lily is Armed Boys and Guns Some Experiences I Buy a New Dinghy Make Mud Patents and Become a Wildfowler Exploration of Creeks, etc., with the Boy Robin He Learns to Shoot and Walk Upon Mud First Attempt Planted in mud. Variety and extent of creeks. List of wild birds. Rough weather. A hard beat home. Water in forepeak. A pump out. Mainsail split. Pick up our mooring and lose the dinghy. Her narrow escape. HISTORY OF MY MAINSAIL A WEAK POINT ON IT ROBIN ALONE IN THE LILY AMONG THE WILDFOWL A MORNING ROW ROBIN IN INDIA THE OLD LILY DROPS HER IRON KEEL MY MOORINGS TESTED BY A TIMBER RAFT IN A GALE LILY SOLVED BY BILL KIRBY Lily among Lee. Careless neighbors. An anchor through bottom of Lily. She sails into port in a sinking condition. Why she kept afloat at all. The landlubber's plea. My mate, little nut. Her dread of a squall. How she kept a reckoning by nose. I fall in with a friend afloat, and a new boat, foam the second. Itchin' ferry rig versus sloop for single-handed sailing. Description of foam number two. Winds and weather in Southampton water and Solent. Hamble River. Up to Burselden. Eighteenth-century ships built there. THE TRAINING SHIP MERCURY BOLU RIVER BUCKLER'S HARD OLD SHIPS BUILT THERE SOLITUDE OF BOLU RIVER TODAY A WET NIGHT IN IT HOW NAVIGATED BY AN OLD TRADER HIS LOOKOUT DIRECTIONS FOR SAILING INTO BULEY HAVEN CONCLUSION Two lives insufficient to exhaust various conditions of cruising under sail, etc. When Manny, or Robin as he was now called, was about half past twelve, my water biography became greatly mixed up with him, and a new twelve bore single barreled gun 
which from that date nearly always formed part of the armament of the lily. My experience of the average boy is that if kept from guns he takes to pistols, and having in my younger days some personal knowledge of that dangerous combination, the boy and gun, in the shape of two escapes myself, one from the bursting of a thirty-shilling gun and nearly losing an eye from the long-range fire of another, besides once just missing a friend one day at close quarters by careless handling of one, I was naturally anxious that my youngster should first make the acquaintance of his gun under my supervision. Besides this gun, I had added to my fleet a light nine-foot dinghy and a pair of mud pattens, and thus equipped we made for several years in the autumn months voyages of discovery together up all the winding leaks or creeks which run for miles inshore from Southampton water toward the new forest. The extent of these inlets and variety of wild fowl feeding upon their banks at low water is not apparent to those merely sailing up or down Southampton River and our plan of exploration was to anchor the lily as a base of operations, food or retreat in bad weather, in or near the mouth of one about low tide, and leaving her to paddle up it in the light draft dinghy. At first Robin used only to take the easiest shots at the tamer flights of sanderlings or oxbirds but he rapidly got to be a good shot from a boat, and after the first season I seldom went with him in the small boat, but lay at anchor or cruising on and off in the lily near the entrance of the creek, one of which was rarely explored in this way, or all the waterfowl in it duly stocked in less than two hours, because it frequently chanced that something killed had to be retrieved from soft mud on the pattens or mud shoes, which always led to some delay. He soon acquired the art of walking safely on them, but I shall not forget one of his first efforts to retrieve some birds on them off a very deep soft mud bank, when, standing for a moment too long to look round, both feet sank about a foot into it, and he called out to me that he could not get them out. I was only a few yards from him in the dinghy, but where he stood, rooted in mud, pulling hard first at one foot and then at another, until he was seized with the kind of panic felt by people in the water when out of their depth for the first time. I told him he must get clear or wait till I could get nearer with the boat when the tide rose. But as he recovered from his first helpless feeling, his strength returned, and getting clear, he learned that you can no more stand still upon patents on soft mud 
than upon a bicycle. The banks of most of these creeks vary at low water from three to six feet, and soon after entering one a boat is quite lost to sight, while they extend so far toward the mainland that the report even of a gun is not heard in a boat outside one. And when my boy first began to explore them alone, I passed many a half-hour of anxious suspense on board the lily as I lay waiting his return. Not that I was at a loss for something to do, for nobody need fear that who keeps his own craft in order. Added to which, the natural history to be studied and sky effects to be noted lying quietly in a boat in this way are an unfailing source of pleasure. Robin rarely came back empty-handed, and among the birds he used to bring were oxbirds, red and green shanks, dotterel, knots or newts, curlew, wimbrel, coots, plovers, ducks, teal, sea-pies, etc. After killing one or two first, he never fired at gulls, but shags or cormorants were always shot when they gave him a chance. I may mention here that though we never fell in with any, a flock of twenty of that rare bird, the avocet, was seen here in January 1881. They were very tame, and I am sorry to say eight were killed and sold to a local taxidermist. On these rather long expeditions we sometimes got caught in bad weather, and one of the hardest fights I ever had to windward in the old lily was from the large leak just above Calshot Castle to my moorings off West Quay. This creek winds inland a long distance, and unites with another higher up the river. And though it was blowing fresh when Robin left me in the boat, the water in the creek was smooth, and the lily lay snugly sheltered under the lee of the high banks most of the time he was absent. The wind, however, hauled into the northwest, and about 2 p.m., just as I finished dinner, began to blow hard right down the river. Robin had his lunch with him in his boat, and plenty of cartridges for his gun, and far up the creek knew nothing of the change and strength of wind, so that I had ample time to prepare the old boat for a dusting before his return, by close reefing her mainsail and foresail, and stepping down the old storm jib ready for setting on her bowsprit. He did not turn up, however, until past three, by which time the first of the flood had covered the sheltering banks, and the lily was tugging impatiently at her anchor, anxious, no doubt, as I was to be off home. Robin brought back what he called a good bag of three brace of plovers and newts beside a bunch of oxbirds. 
I told him to stow his gun and everything that wanted keeping dry in the cuddy, and hurry up, so that we might get away before the strength of the tide kicked up more sea. As we left the creek under a close reef mainsail and small jib, I saw my old friend John Nichols the pilot come out of Hamble close reefed in his little eight ton cutter the fawn we had but one suit of oilskins between us i told robin therefore to stay in the forepeak except when actually wanted outside the first two tacks across the river were made in comparative comfort but as the tide grew stronger so did both wind and sea and before the end of the third tack robin sung out from the cuddy i say look here the water's washing up in her to leeward so that i had to ease the main and foresheets and what is termed jill her along easy a bit for a pump out this had hardly been done when robin who had returned to his cuddy called out i say that bowsprit's kicking up an awful row i expect something will carry away and i told him to come out again to the tiller while i stowed the jib ran in the bowsprit and set the close reef foresail robin turned in again and found matters a lot better she was however going head and shoulders into the short steep seas like a porpoise and soon wanted another spell at the pumps this kind of thing went on until just above netley i saw to my disgust the after leech of my mainsail beginning to give out as they often do just above the last reef earing i eased the sheet a trifle but slowly the rent grew longer until three hours after leaving calshot i found myself just able to weather the pier in a smother of foam and sea with a split in my mainsail four feet long but still hanging on by the hem to the sheet the moment I passed the end of the pier, I was more or less on a lee shore, with the pier dead to leeward of me, and if we failed to secure my mooring buoy, knew that in such a breeze no anchor would hold, or keep her from driving on to it. Three hours at the tiller in this kind of weather with eyes constantly full of salt water and the spray flying over the boat as we stood in towards her mooring made it almost impossible to see anything before one. I knew, however, by other boats riding near about where the buoy ought to be, and calling Robin out of the cuddy told him as i brought her head to the wind that though i could not see it our buoy must be close under her bows he jumped forward and throwing himself face down on deck with his arm over her bow sung out i've got it and a moment afterwards between us 
we got in the buoy rope and had her fast hooked by the nose to her chain. The wet canvas was soon stowed, and I was glad to light a pipe and rest a bit under the lee of the cuddy, out of the blinding wind and spray. These moorings above the pier at Southampton are, in a nor'wester, exposed to a long drift of sea, when boats ride so heavily there that now and then even half-decked ones, like the lily, unless attended to, sink at their moorings. That is, if they do not break adrift and get knocked to pieces against the pier. While it is sometimes not easy either to board or leave one for shore in a small boat. And as I lay resting in my cuddy, I turned over in my mind whether to risk a landing in our little dinghy or wait for a larger boat to come off for us from West Quay. This question and my repose was cut short and soon settled for me by the dinghy unhitching her painter by which we had towed her from Calshot and drifting away toward the pier where I knew she would become matchwood in five minutes. Luckily, a steam launch was moored right in her line of drift, and seeing a man on board, I managed to hail and ask him to try and get hold of her as she passed, which he did, and we landed soon afterwards in a large boat sent from shore, where I learnt that shortly before we took our mooring, a more powerful boat than mine, with eleven hundredweight of lead on her keel, had just been forced to run back into the itchin to escape sinking after an attempt to beat up only two miles from Hythe. My friend Nichols was at his moorings in the fawn more than an hour before we got round the pier, and said next day, I thought when I saw you get under way that you'd run for Hamble and walk home. And though I never did such a thing before, perhaps had I foreseen that split in my sail, I might have done so, and saved the fourteen shillings which it cost to mend. That mainsail was not new, being one I bought from my friend Mr. Knight, author of Cruises of Falcon Alert, etc., who had used it a season or two in his boat, the Ripple. I know it had twice crossed the channel in her with him. But for the benefit of owners of single-handed cruisers, I may point out here that sailmakers seem to forget that the fourth or last reef earingle, etc., in the mainsails of such boats being rarely used, except in hard winds or squalls, should be stronger than those below it. This is seldom the case, and I had lately quite a strong mainsail give out in this way. 
one ought of course to be provided with what is called a trysail for such occasions but when caught in a breeze in awkward corners there is not always time to stow a mainsail and set a trysail though i often started with robin on these expeditions before breakfast and we were not home sometimes before dark he boy-like always had an idea that we did not reach his shooting in time and left it too soon and in order to prove this begged to be left anchored in one of the large creeks on board the lily for one or two nights and knowing he could come to no harm the lily was victualled one fine day in august for two days and after carefully mooring her in hours leak with two anchors i left him there monarch of all he surveyed among the mud-flats and waterfowl and took passage up to southampton in the old bee cow's trader promising not to rejoin robin or my ship again for eight and forty hours the weather kept fine and i kept my promise and did not disturb his solitude before the appointed time when i left west quay at five a m in a light skiff and with an ebb tide after an hour's paddle of six miles reached the lily before six o'clock where i found robin so sound asleep in the cuddy with the door shut that he did not hear me get on board the result of his two nights watch was almost nil and after boiling the kettle for breakfast we unmoored ship and in almost a dead calm slowly tided and rowed the lily back to southampton the boy robin is now an engineer on the east indian railway he became a first-rate rifle shot as a volunteer both in the winchester school corps and the regiment he belongs to in india where he this year won the viceroy's cup and has passed more than one solitary night's watch in a tree looking out for a shot by moonlight at tiger being one of the few men who combine the qualities of a good snapshot with long-range rifle shooting i kept the old lily for fourteen years and sold her for more than i gave for her during that time she had several escapes of becoming a total loss she dropped her iron keel of four hundred weight one day somewhere in the mud and i did not discover the loss for some weeks though she puzzled me at times before i did so by her want of stability under sail she was fouled on one occasion on her mooring in a northwest gale by a timber raft of eight hundred railway sleepers which tested the strength of my chain by riding with her to it for a short time this happened early one morning and the old boat was only saved from being knocked to pieces 
by the activity and energy of my friend Bill Kirby of West Quay, who with difficulty cleared her of the raft and making sail ran her safely on the mud the other side the river. She had also a bad time of it one winter when left afloat longer than usual among ice, in which she became frozen for three days, the ice being too thick to get at her from shore in a boat, though not strong enough to walk out upon to her, and we fully expected that, if it broke up at night, she would be either stove and sunk by it on her moorings or be carried away down the river in the flow. Luckily, the first signs of the break-up occurred in daylight, and a passage was forced through it in a boat to her, after which one hand breaking the ice in front of her with a stout oar, she was brought safely into port. The distance was not great, but the oar used to break the ice was reduced to a mere pointed stump in doing so. One of the most provoking things to those who lay down efficient moorings for their own boats is the careless way in which others' owners leave craft insecurely anchored near them. And I remember boarding the lily one day in a gale to pump her out, and finding to my surprise that she was quite half full of water. I had a good pump, but after working at it for some time, did not gain perceptibly on the water. I had, in fact, only boarded her in time to save her from sinking, owing to her having sunk at low water upon a yacht's anchor which had dragged under her during the preceding night, and made a hole in her bottom. It was blowing a gale, with a good deal of sea, but I had just time to set the foresail, and working the pump with one hand, steer her with the other into West Quay Harbor, where I found, after the tide left, that she would have sunk before I boarded her had it not been for a piece of iron ballast which lay over the hole and partly closed it inside as the tide lifted the boat off the point of the anchor. I had warned the owner or skipper of this little cutter some days before that she was anchored too near me but he was too lazy to move her, and when written to for compensation for the damage, pleaded stress of weather, a plea which has protected many a landlubber under similar circumstances. After Robin left home, my only mate and companion on board the Lily was our trusty and affectionate little dog, Nut. Nut, I believe, like my wife, never really enjoyed sailing, and only regarded the hours spent in the boat with me as something to be endured or got through. She had a curious dread of a strong wind, and when the boat lay over to it, 
always scrambled up to windward under the seat I sat upon. In moderate weather she would curl up for hours and pass the time away apparently asleep. But though unable to see anything round us where she lay, not invariably knew by some mysterious nose reckoning where the boat was and at the end of a cruise about five minutes before picking up the mooring would come out from under her seat and jumping upon it look round for the well-known landmarks of home and having made sure that she was not out in her reckoning put herself away again until the sails were furled and the boat alongside for shore. It was while cruising in the lily with my mate, Nut, that I first made the acquaintance of a kind friend, one of the best single-handed boatmen I ever fell in with. He did not care himself for match sailing, but when on the water in his boat, built especially for him for single-handed use by John Pickett of West Quay, he always enjoyed a trial of speed and watermanship in her with any boat he chanced to meet. And as we were both single-handed, this led to many friendly contests between us. My friend's was a beautiful little boat, which might be described as a cross between the deeper keelboat and the centerboard or uniboat. She had outside lead on her keel, but with her centerboard up drew less water than the old lily. She was sloop-rigged, that is, she had only one headsail with a short bowsprit. The lily was a foot shorter, and I should have had no chance against my friend's boat had she not been a trifle under-canvassed. I also had the advantage, at first, of knowing the water and set of the tides better than a stranger. So that in light winds, working against tide, the lily at times had the best of it, while a large cotton jib I made for her often gave me the advantage in a long reach. On the other hand, the gear of my boat, like her hull and skipper, was growing old, and I had often to be careful in a breeze not to put too much strain on it or her hull. I think it was feeling this that first led my friend to propose a new boat for me, to be built at his expense, but according to my own plans for speed and single-handed cruising. I told him that I was getting too old for a new boat, and that it would be like an old man marrying a young wife if I accepted his kind offer. He, however, overruled this and all other objections, and said simply, I want to see and meet you in a boat in which you can carry sail safely in all weather. The result was that in May 1886, Foam the Second was launched. She was designed and built by Arthur Payne, son of the builder of the Lily. 
my friend also had a larger and more powerful boat built for him in which he kept to the sloop rig and though she drew more water than his first boat and had nearly two tons of outside lead he had her fitted with a centerboard i have always held that for single-handed sailing the itchin ferry rig with the two headsails of a cutter is easier to handle than a sloop especially in a squall or bad weather when with a small jib sail can be reduced quickly by lowering the foresail my friend's new boat had a counter and modern overhanging stem and though a much longer boat overall her water-line was a foot shorter than the foams which had an upright stem above water and a square stern. My only directions, in fact, to Payne were to build a twenty-foot boat, making any improvements he could on his father's boat, her draft of water to be three feet six inches, and the weight of lead twenty-five hundred weight with spars and sails in proportion for easy use by one hand as this little boat rather exceeded both my own and designer's expectations in all round speed comfort and handiness i give here the lines of her hull the foam's upright stern post and deep keel help her to run true on a sea while the size of her rudder obviates the use of much weather helm on a wind and helps to keep the boat on a straight course for a short time when left to herself while a single hand is attending to other things it also enables one to bear away quickly without easing the main sheet and when picking up a buoy or coming alongside a quay can be used as a drag upon her speed by putting it hard over quickly in opposite directions my friend's boat proved a fast powerful boat both in light and strong winds to windward but her floor was rather short and the foam could always outreach her indeed on this point of sailing it would be hard to find a faster boat and just after she was launched in a trial with a new racing craft by the same builder she proved able when towing a nine-foot dinghy to hold her own though the racer was a foot longer on the water-line and had no boat behind her the foam is also very fast to windward in smooth water her average speed with a fresh beam wind is seven miles an hour and with a northeast breeze a trip from southampton to portsmouth and back of thirty-five miles can be made in about five hours the most favorable winds up or down southampton water are those from northeast or southwest both of which are soldiers winds in the river and across the solent to cows with the wind at southeast it is a dead beat down to calshot 
and with a nor'wester a dead beat up to Southampton. In fine summer weather you may often run down Southampton water in the morning before a northerly breeze as far as Hamble Point, and there, after a spell of calm, pick up a fresh southerly or southeasterly breeze from the sea, which after midday will probably haul round with the sun to the westward. In such weather, however, the wind generally falls light toward evening, and unless certain of a good flood tide, you stand a chance of not getting home to tea, or even a late dinner. One of my favorite short-day voyages is from Southampton up the Hamble, past Warsash, Hamble, and the pretty training ship Mercury, to Burselden, an old-world red-brick village on the left bank of the river, about four miles from Hamble Spit Buoy. Here, in the 18th century, ten or more fine frigates were built for the navy. Among them were the Galatea, Quebec, Eagle, Jason, and Ruby, besides the Anson and Ardent, sixty-gun ships. The way up all these smaller tidal rivers is best seen at or about low water, when the high mud-banks are exposed. I cannot leave Hamble River without a word of admiration at the public-spirited devotion of Mr. C. A. R. Hoare, the founder and supporter of the above-mentioned Mercury. One feels, indeed, that he must have had Elizabethan ideas of the duties of an English gentleman when he fitted her out single-handed, so to say, as a training ship for boys for his Queen's Navy. For so far the whole initial and annual expense of this patriotic work has been allowed to rest entirely on him. An attempt even to obtain from the Council of the County of Southampton a small part of the fund placed in their hands to assist technical education has so far failed. Probably one reason why this valuable institution has had no outside help is that the mercury is not a receptacle for waifs and strays, but a training ship for the education and maintenance of poor boys only whose antecedents allow Mr. Hoare to hope that in helping them he is working upon material which in after life may stand the strain of honest, useful work. For he feels that sound heart of oak sailors can no more be made of the children of drunken loafers or cornermen than sound ships can be built of poplar trees. Putting aside the first expenses, 8,000 pounds, of fitting her out eight years ago, the ship has cost Mr. Hoare about 3,000 pounds a year. 
the only reimbursement for which has been the twenty-five pounds received for each boy passed into the navy surely there must be among the rich gentlemen of england others with enough elizabethan blood left in them to induce some of them to give mr hoare a helping hand towards manning our ships with english boys but leaving private help out of the question mr hoare's work has certainly at this time a claim on government or what is now the same thing the support of the people southampton is one of our largest ports surrounded by an amphibious population but at present the mercury is the only practical school for the technical training of young sailors in the port another lovely and interesting voyage is up the bolu river which is easily navigated in a boat like the foam seven miles from its mouth in the solent to beaulieu past buckler's hard where also in the eighteenth century numbers of men-of-war were built including two of seventy-four guns and the agamemnon and europa of sixty-four guns besides several frigates both hamble and Bewley haven as it is called in old maps must in those days have been bustling busy inlets resident with the click of cocking mallets and the shipwright's mall a letter however cannot even be posted to-day at buckler's hard and it would not be easy to find a place surpassing the solitude and repose of Boileau River as it winds through broad banks of green ooze bordered by the thickly wooded shores of the new forest. But to thoroughly enjoy its scenery, at least one day and night should be spent on the river. It is easy when sailing up this now almost unknown creek to forget at times that we are within a mile or two of one of the most important english waterways and the scenery as the boat tacks up reach after reach through the forest impresses one with the idea that you are sailing on some unexplored south american or african stream instead of an english river within one hour's sail of cows or portsmouth and yet after sleeping soundly in the foam's cuddy one night i found that even this forsaken old haven was not entirely without trade of a sort and that i had run some risk of being roused out at midnight while anchored in it the night was a pouring wet one and to keep the open part of the boat dry abaft the cuddy, I had rigged a waterproof tent over it, under which I hung a riding light. But when I turned out at daylight, I began to think my boat must have drifted during the night, for there, in the gray of the morning, 
lay just astern of me a weather-beaten old catch, and knowing for certain by the tide that nothing could have come into the river during the night, I dropped back to her in my dinghy to ask her crew, one solitary old man of about seventy, where she hailed from, and when he brought up there. He answered with, Dropped down from Bewley last night. Then, I said, you must have had a wetting. No, I didn't. I were below in the rain. I asked whether he saw my boat. Oh, yes, I seed her and the light, cause I come up about twelve o'clock just afore I let go my anchor which was lucky, for if he had fouled the foam on the ebb tide, she would probably have parted her chain or carried away her bowsprit. The old fellow was bound to Southampton, so we got under way together, and I learnt from him his simple plan of navigating the Beaulieu River by night, and how he started his old catch on a drift down it with the tide, trusting to its sweep to carry her along about midstream, and to the certainty of not falling in with anything to run foul of. The mouth of Beaulieu River has no doubt greatly changed, even since the time large ships were built on it by one Adams of Buckler's Hard, and is not easily seen now from the Solent. But by standing straight in for the shore from Leap Buoy, it will be found marked by three small poles on the mud on the port hand while two posts on shore, with boards across their tops, kept in line, are the leading marks into the river in the best water. I think one reason for keeping these old shipyards so far up a long winding creek must have been to ensure them from night attacks and the burning of ships on the stocks by enemy cruisers. I have sailed in foam number two for seven years, and in her met all kinds of weather and squalls, mostly alone. That is, if one can call it being alone in such a boat. But after a boating experience of over fifty years, I may say that I have never made a trip afloat without learning something. The changes or combinations of wind, weather, and tides are so endless that had a man two boating lives allotted him, he would still meet conditions under canvas afloat he had not met before. It is this which gives to every little voyage in a sailing boat the freshness and interest of a game of chess especially when the cruising ground is the crowded waterway of a great seaport. End of chapter 14 Recorded by 
Peter Kelleher, Eastport Medway, Nova Scotia. End of A Water Biography by Robert C. Leslie